as we continue in 2 Thessalonians and we come to this second chapter, or we stay in the second chapter, I guess I should say, we come to an important part of the text. And we talked about this a little bit last week. We kind of laid the groundwork or set some hedgerows in place, hopefully, kind of pointed where we're going. But as we think about it, we want to recognize what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the parousia, or return of Christ, and he's wanting them to not be misled. Paul tells them that there's been some things that they've heard, that they have come to believe that are not correct. They've been misled, and Paul says that. They shouldn't have been so soon shaken in mind. They shouldn't be so confused or troubled. And he says, however this has happened, it doesn't seem as if Paul even knows quite how it's happened. Somehow, some false teaching has entered in. He says, whether by spirit or by word, or even if by a letter as if from us. Maybe the idea there is that someone had forged a letter in Paul's hand. Whatever the case, uh, there has been some confusion set in. Some of the Thessalonian believers had come to believe that the day of the Lord had already come. And I mentioned last week that uh, even the scholars are, are saying we're not quite sure how this would have been formed in their mind that they thought they would miss so great an event. But they did. They thought perhaps Christ has returned, this great thing has happened, and somehow we've missed out. We missed it, that it came. Paul says, don't be shaken, don't be deceived. You haven't missed anything. You haven't missed anything. These events are not going to be missed. As we mentioned uh, in 1 Thessalonians, uh, the picture of this return of Christ is with trumpets and shouts. This is the picture of audible, invisible clues that will not be missed. Will not be missed. And so again, uh, Paul says, you haven't missed it. Remember what I taught you. What I taught you when I was with you and what I taught you even in the first letter. How could you be so easily led astray in so short a time? You need a better foundation. You need to know where to stand and then stand there and don't be shaken, don't be moved. Stand on the truth of God's Word and trust in it. And so Paul says, uh, when this happens, it will be with splendor and glory. You won't miss it. It's not missable. It's not able to be missed. And Paul says, so if you want to know more about it, let me tell you this, the day, that day will not come without a couple of harbingers coming first, a couple of signs pointing to them first. And of course, we looked at this generally last Sunday. We're going to delve a little bit more into it today. Uh, we're going to mostly look at these first couple of verses and the information contained there uh, as we continue forward through this text. But Paul says there's a couple of harbingers, a couple of things to look that must come first. First, a general falling away or lawlessness would, must come. And we spoke about this last week, apostasia, this word that we get apostasy from that means lawlessness, rebellion. All of God's good forms of government shall be rebelled against. A growing rebellion against family, against church, against state. All of these things, Paul says, must take place. And then he says, once that stage has been set, then shall come the man of sin, the man of lawlessness. This one who will come, who is in fact kind of the embodiment of what that age of lawlessness shall be. This growing age of rebellion shall be, in a sense, symbolized or uh, brought to its fullness in Him, in the person of the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness, the man of sin. So all of this Paul has been talking about. And I want to 
have us read very quickly again, starting in verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the work of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now, my friends, that is a difficult text. It's a text in which Paul is setting out joy, hope, and comfort for the people of God. But it speaks of difficult things. He is saying, know that... These things must take place, but in the end, victory. Victory for the people of God. Vindication, Christ's return, will come at the end of these things. And so as we look at this text, I want us to look at two things I think Paul wants us to draw from this. First of all, there are revealing descriptions that are given here. Second of all, terrifying forerunners. And I think it's important to understand these forerunners if we're going to understand what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians and what they would have understood Uh, in the text that we're looking at today. So beginning, first of all, with this idea of these revealing descriptions that we see in the text. As we think about this man of lawlessness, this man of sin, and, you know, we've spoken about this, probably man of lawlessness is a little more correct in the Greek, but there's a lot of ways to understand this man. One person translated it a champion of wickedness, and I think that's a fair translation. I titled the sermon, The Advocate of Wickedness. He comes in an age of wickedness and seems to be the one trying to draw it to its fullest extent. Uh, It makes sense, doesn't it? Because what is wickedness? What is sin except rebellion against God? And so this man symbolizes this or brings it to its summation. He is the one who will be the embodiment, if you will, of what it means to rebel against God. Now, as you think about this, you can't separate him from the age that he's described as coming in. It says the stage will be set first, an age of lawlessness will will be revealed, and an apostasy will be revealed, and then out of that will come this man. He will emerge. He will appear. Now, we spoke last week about this idea of apostasy. In this sense, it's not just within the church, but rebellion against every structure of government. So the idea is uh, rebellion against God's form of government in the household. Well, we see that under attack in our own day been under attack for a while his church under attack well we've seen that for a while and it's getting worse and worse spoke to a gentleman yesterday from the Washington area and he was talking about he lives just north of Seattle what churches there are going through and so again we see that that there is a growing age even in our own country of kind of an attack against the church trying to make the church irrelevant or actually openly attacking the church and so again we see that even in our own age Uh, some of these things. But what's interesting is it also would picture a rebellion against government. 
which God has given us to, I guess as Paul puts it in Romans 13, to reward good and to punish evil. And we see even that under attack today. And so you see many of these uh, things that you might call the spirit of Antichrist or the spirit of lawlessness in our midst even today, even today. And it's interesting that Paul 2,000 years ago said when you see these things, be careful what side of the line you're on. He says this is an evident token in this very letter of where you stand in relationship to God's rule and reign. Are you on the side of it or are you opposing it? And so again, we need to see that these are what I think here he calls the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This is something that is growing. I often think about the parables in Matthew's gospel, the parable of the the wheat and the tares. And I think the scholars say that's likely darnel that was planted in the man's field amongst his wheat. But what is the image there? The image is once they recognize that there is a combination of wheat and also the weeds, they say, do you want us to go pull the weeds? The tares, do you want us to pull them out? And, of course, what does the master say? No, let them both grow to the end. Let them both grow to the end. I think the picture there is of the truth that there will be growing lawlessness and the church will grow at the same time throughout history until the end. I think you see that here. There's a growing lawlessness in our own age, but the gospel is going forth into all nations in our own age. The gospel has advanced greatly even in our times. I think that helps us to understand better what Paul is saying in the last days. There will be perilous times. There will be a great movement of evil in those last days. But again, it also tells us how the gospel advances and goes out into all the nations. And so again, we see this idea that this spirit of the age is even in our own days. It was in Paul's day. It's in our own day. A growing age of rebellion and evil. Now, If you notice that this man of evil that comes, he'll oppose all these things we've been talking about. He'll oppose the family. He'll oppose government, or he'll want himself to be looked at as the answer. He'll oppose the church. He'll oppose the church. Now, how does he do that? Well, it's pretty obvious how he'll do that. It says that uh, he will desire himself to be worshipped. He will desire to be the object of worship himself. So, obviously, that's going to be in conflict with the church. Obviously, that's going to be in conflict with the church at any age, at any time. It should be anyway. And so again, you're going to see this idea that he is going to desire that he shall be the object of worship. If you just think about it for a moment, this idea of lawlessness, you get the idea of chaos, turmoil. It's interesting how oftentimes evil advances in such periods, isn't it? It shouldn't surprise us if we read the scriptures where there's a lack of proper Government, evil does advance. Again, only out of the turmoil of the end of the First World War could someone like Hitler rise to power in Germany. Again and again, if you look at your history, it falls right in line with what we see here as you see these patterns throughout time. And so again, you'll see how important this is. Now, if you look through this text and you look at again at what's being laid out for us here, I want us to look at it very carefully. He's described here not only uh, as the man of sin or lawlessness and the son of perdition, which we'll come back to in a moment. But it says he opposes. He opposes. He's the accuser and opposer uh, of all good things and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, a lot of these things are going to depend on how you interpret them based on your viewpoint of the end times. Premillennialism, which is the most popular view today, 
would say this temple is the literal temple, a third temple that will be built in Israel one day. If you come from the camp, like say an amillennial camp, like the Reformers and the Puritans were, they would look at this and say, well, this is the temple that Paul writes about in the New Testament. This is the church. Do you ever wonder how the, the Reformers thought the Antichrist was the Pope? This is how. They thought someone would set himself as the ruler of the church. One who would say, I am the one who is the vicar of Christ, the one whom uh, you should listen to in place of Christ. And so that's how they came to that. How you view these things will greatly interpret the individual details that you're looking at here. But what's interesting to me is, however you see this, it's clear that he sets himself up as the one to be worshipped. He wants the worship of all people. He wants the worship of all people around the world. Notice, he doesn't just set himself uh, to be called God or to be worshipped amongst one people, but all peoples. He wants to set himself to be exalted above all that is called God. All that is called God. Right? No matter how you interpret this, you're going to see that he wants the worship for himself. He wants to set himself up as God and to be worshipped amongst all the people. Now Paul says, I told you all this. Remember the details. I told you all of this when I was with you. Don't forget it. One of the things that I want to say here is that it's important that we think about how the Thessalonians would have interpreted this. And so what I really want to spend our time on this morning is the second uh, part here, the second point that I wanted to make, which is terrifying forerunners. You know, the description that's given here of this coming man of lawlessness, this man of wickedness, would not have been alien to Jews who were in the church. They would have heard in this much of what Daniel described. And we talked about this a little bit last week. But they would have heard some of the descriptions that Daniel gave of the coming uh, man. They would have heard some of that in this description. One who desires to be worshipped by all people. One who will set himself up. One who will blaspheme God. One who will uh, do this abomination of desolation. Now, as I mentioned, all of that was seen by the Jewish people as being fulfilled in Antiochus IV Epiphanes. I didn't get into the details last week, but if you go back in history and you know a little bit about Antiochus Epiphanes, he was the Seleucid uh, ruler. That's uh, one of the four empires, if you will, that came out of Alexander the Great's empire. When Alexander died, four of his generals broke up his empire. They each took a portion of it. And so this is one of those. He becomes the, the ruler of one of those. Now, if you go before him, they had gotten along with the Jewish leaders. They had allowed the Jews to worship as they wanted But this all changed with Antiochus IV. Antiochus desired that he himself would be worshipped. And if you read about that period, it's one of the worst. In fact, many Jews consider it the worst period in all of Jewish history, in which Antiochus demanded that all peoples that fall under his rule recognize that he is the God above all gods. In fact, his name that he took, Epiphanes, he gave to himself, that word means manifestation, And what he claimed was that he was the manifestation of Zeus in the world. That he was the manifestation of Zeus in the world. So he said, I deserve to be exalted and worshipped above any other god that you might believe in. One of the only peoples that resisted were the Jewish people. They were one of the only people that said, we can't worship you. And so he began a reign of terror upon the Jewish people. Now, maybe you're familiar with this, maybe you're not. If you aren't, you ought to read up on it. It's an amazing period of time. He came in and ruled with an iron fist. He made Israel kind of the focus of his reign as he brought terror down upon the people of Israel. 
This is in the intertestamental period, by the way, after Malachi, before the New Testament, about 160 B.C. He was not able to get the Jewish people to worship him the way he wanted, so he sent more troops in, just slaughtered anybody that got in his way, and then finally said, if the temple's the problem, let's solve this problem. He went into the temple with his troops and set up an idol of Zeus in the temple. So this is that abomination of desolation. And as you may remember, he slaughtered pigs on the altar of God as a way of profaning it. And so again, all of this you might know through uh, the celebration of the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah. In Hanukkah, they celebrate the rededication of the temple uh, to God. And this is, of course, after the Maccabees rebelled against uh, the Seleucids and kind of drove them out, and they rededicated and cleansed the temple. That's where Hanukkah comes from which we know Jesus even one time went to Jerusalem during the Festival of Lights. And so again, this is an important moment in the history of Israel. Now, am I saying that this is who uh, Paul is picturing? No, not at all. Obviously, Paul is after this. Paul's not prophesying something that came to pass 200 years earlier. But Paul is trying to tell people that there is a recurrent pattern, I think, in these Antichrist figures. If you just go back throughout the scriptures, you see them over and over again. The people who stand in opposition to God and the people of God. Can you think of some? How about from the very beginning? How about Cain? We're warned in the New Testament not to go the way of Cain. What does that mean? A way of faithlessness and opposition to God. He got so enraged over God not accepting his form of worship that he killed his brother, murdered his own brother in anger against God. You can go throughout the Old Testament and find picture after picture. How about Amalek, who waged war against the women and the children of the people of God? How about Pharaoh, who said, you don't belong to God, you belong to me. I'm not going to let you leave uh, the building of my glorious objects to go worship in the wilderness. No, you belong to me. Whose people were they? I think God settled that argument. But again, Pharaoh is pictured here as a form of an antichrist, as actually Egypt in general is. Later, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon in a similar way. So you see over and over again these pictures of antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes is maybe just the greatest of those, in a sense. And so much of the symbols of the New Testament come from that period. You see time, times, and half a time. right? What is that kind of picturing? Some future thing? Yes. But in light of what's already happened, A three and a half year period under the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes in which the Jewish people were almost crushed. It was seen that God alone could have delivered them from the power of that empire. So again, we have to read this as the Jews in Thessalonica would have read it. They would have certainly immediately thought about the similarity between the wording here and Daniel. And this picture of a pattern of lawless men, godless men. In fact, men that are forms of antichrist and we know that's not improper to say because john says that you've heard of the antichrist the the article he's giving here is there is an antichrist but he says even now i tell you there are many antichrists right so there's this one vision if you will of this great one who will rise up in opposition to god and christ but he comes in a line of others who come before paving the way In fact, you could argue in some sense that all people who stand in opposition to Christ are antichrist or antichrist. So you could get into some complicated stuff on on that language. 
Because it can have two meanings. It can have one who opposes Christ. Well, there are certainly many, many, many of those throughout every age. But it can also mean, auntie can also mean replacement for. And I think that's kind of what Paul is playing on here in 2 Thessalonians 2. One who will claim that he is the replacement for Christ. He is the one to be honored and worshipped and gloried in by all peoples of the earth. So again, you can imagine this picture of Antiochus Epiphanes that would have been uh, very much on the minds of Jewish readers of 2 Thessalonians. But some of those that would come very close to the writing of this fit a similar pattern. In fact, you'll see people who are trying to say, well, Paul is talking about Caligula, or he's talking about Nero, or he's talking about Titus, you know, these uh, Roman leaders and generals that came within 20 or 25 years of these events. Again, I think that you could rightly describe them as antichrists. I mean, don't forget that all of these men made it an object of their rule and reign to, to persecute Christians. All of them did. Nero of course, blamed Christians for the burning of the part of Rome that he couldn't get uh, the Senate to rebuild. He'd gone to the Senate, he'd asked for them to rebuild a part of the city. They refused to do it, so most historians believe he just burnt that part of the city down to force their hand, and he blamed Christians for it and instituted a period of great suffering for the church. In fact, Peter and Paul both died under his rule, most people believing that Paul was killed uh, you know, through beheading and that Peter was burnt to death. There's a couple of different histories on what people think happened to Peter, but again, under Nero's rule. And so some people think, well, maybe Paul's talking about Nero. I don't think so. Because again, the picture here is of the return of Christ, the last days, the eschaton, that these events will take place then. By the way, General Titus that I mentioned a minute ago is a popular candidate because Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 A.D., But before they destroyed the temple, he walked in with the Roman standards and placed them inside the temple. And some people say, well, isn't that kind of putting Caesar's glory into the temple? So some people will try to interpret it that way. But again, you've got to look at the big picture that Paul is getting at. All your sufferings shall be brought to comfort in that day. In that day. Did the destruction of Jerusalem bring comfort to the people in Thessalonica from their struggles and persecutions? No. So that's why I think, uh, for me, full preterism is easy to reject. That's the idea that all of these prophecies took place by 70 A.D. I don't think that's right. I think certain prophecies did take place by then. Much of what Jesus talks about in the Olivet Discourse is about the destruction of Jerusalem. Those things took place then. But I think there is another picture that Paul's getting at here of the return of Christ in which the people of God will be comforted, will be comforted from their struggles, and the enemies of God shall be judged. That certainly didn't happen in 70 A.D. That certainly didn't happen. And so, again, I think we've got a couple of of images here that we've got to see. All right, so if we see all of these things, we also want to recognize that there's another picture given here, the son of perdition. And I mentioned last week that there's a couple of ways of looking at this, right? The one who is the destroyer or brings destruction, or more likely the one who has devoted himself to destruction. And I think that's the right one. Most scholars do as well. The idea here is this Antichrist that's coming, he's doomed. He's doomed. He's going to have power. He's going to do many uh, terrible things. But his time is short. It's certain what's going to happen to him. There's no question how the story is going to end. How will it end? Well, look at it right there. We'll end in complete destruction at the revelation of Christ, at his coming. He will destroy him 
will destroy him. Again, I think that's intended to bring comfort to the people of God. The enemies of God will be destroyed. This one who kind of summarizes all the struggle against the people of God shall himself, even though he is one of power and might, fall under the judgment of God and be wiped out, destroyed, utterly devastated. He'll set himself up as an object of worship, but he will be wiped out quickly. Now, that doesn't mean he's not powerful. That doesn't mean he's not powerful. Notice that uh, in verse 9 it says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. This is a powerful man. We shouldn't make any mistake about it. He's a powerful man. He kind of has this satanic power about him. He'll be able to, to do these lying wonders and signs. He'll deceive many. He will harm many. Again, I think if you just look at Antiochus Epiphanes and see if he is a forerunner to that image, the devastation he caused amongst the Jews. Or if you want to go forward to 70 AD, have you ever read about what happened when Jerusalem was destroyed? Jesus tells, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee the city. Flee the city. In other words, he's tying in this destruction of Jerusalem to what they would already recognize, which was what happened in the days of Attacus Epiphanes. The city was surrounded. It was besieged. And it was uh, ultimately, he came in and wiped out many people. So Jesus warning them, when you see these things happening again, flee the city. Don't go into the walls of the city. Don't lock yourself in. Flee to the mountains. Well, history tells us who fled to the city. The Jews. Who left the city and went into the hills? The Christians. What happened in Jerusalem? My friends, if you read the histories of the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, it is horrifying. Horrifying. Think that, you know, I think some of the early historians argued there might have been as many as a million people in Jerusalem. Probably an exaggeration. Maybe it was 300,000 people. They were utterly wiped out. They said the low points of the city were knee-deep with blood. Knee-deep with blood. The city had turned to cannibalism in the days before the city fell. Uh, Just incredible horror. But again, and that is still future to Paul, but again, I think those are pictures, pictures of this great Antichrist that's going to one day come at the end of history. My friends, these are not pleasant thoughts. These are not pleasant events. But what Paul is saying is, even as great as this man is in terms of evil, even as great as he is, he is not under uh, his own ultimate authority. Notice over and over again, Paul uses language that wants you to know this. He says, when he appears, very similar words to Christ, very similar words in that sense. You see right now it says in verse 6, and now you know what is restraining. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, that's a whole nother question. What is this restraining force that will one day be taken out of the way that he might emerge? However you want to look at that, his timing is not his own. I think again, Paul is telling you this. All these events will happen in the proper time. And when they happen, they will be under the authority of God. The Antichrist. I mean, think about this for a minute. The Antichrist comes under the power of Satan. But even between Satan and God, it is not some sort of even match. It's not as if Satan uh, is some true rival to the throne of God. Right? I mean, God will eliminate Satan like nothing. I mean, it will be nothing when it happens. 
Again, all these things are taking place according to the timetable of God, and Paul is telling them this. And he's saying when he comes, he will come and he will look fierce and he will look powerful and there will be much destruction and there will even be uh, some difficult times. But he says this, when Christ comes, he'll be wiped out in a second. In a second. What can we take away from this? Well, I think the first thing we want to take away is uh, that the Bible tells us this over and over. Whatever terrible things seem to happen in the world, and they happen regularly, don't they? I think this is the message we see over and over again in Scripture. We live in a fallen world. Wars, famines, pestilence, earthquakes, tidal waves, whatever you want to point to as kind of a, a, a terrible thing of this world, these things will come to pass. And yet in the end, all of them will pale in comparison to the glory of God. Everything shall be put right. That's the promise Paul looks to in, in Romans chapter 8. All will be put right. The creation itself yearns for that day. It cranes its neck looking for the day when all will be set right. In fact, it says in Romans 8 that it looks for the day in which we shall be made right, if you will. Because it knows that its timing is with our timing. Its timing is with our timing. And yet again here, even this terrible picture of this coming man of lawlessness, this man of devastation, sin, and wickedness. My friends, when the time is right, judgment shall fall upon him and all the enemies of God, and all shall be made right. My friends, Paul is trying to tell the people who are being persecuted in the moment. Let's not forget that. A people who are falling under persecution in their day. He's saying there is a coming day, a coming day, my friends, of comfort and rest and peace. And I don't know about you, but that can get you through some pretty tough times. The loss of a loved one, uh, some struggles you're going through in life to know that there is a day when all will be set right. Amen.